Good evening and welcome to the town hall discussion on the women's ordination issue. We're glad to be here at Secrets Unsealed. We're glad to have a few folks with us in the studio this evening. And we're glad to have you joining us uh, wherever you are or whenever you're watching this. And uh, this has been a rather vigorously discussed issue, women's ordination, um, in many denominations and also in uh, the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, especially over the, the past number of years. A number of the panelists have been presenting on Secrets Unsealed's Women's Ordination Symposium. And uh, you might ask, why are we having this discussion? Um, well, the reason we're having this discussion is because we've been encouraged to have the discussion, <laughs> number one, and because there's been, um, there's been a lot of study that's been done, and we want to bring out some of the things that have been discovered in the, over the last two years as the global church came together to study the issue of women's ordination. Representatives from literally many parts of the country. I mean, there were more from the sections that are more polarized over it, but they had what was called the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. Just uh, last week um, on the Adventist News Network, uh, Elder Wilson, the General Conference President on Seventh-day Adventists, had this to say. I would encourage each church member and certainly each representative at the annual council, that's a council they have every year annually, of uh, people from around the world. And those who will be delegates to the general conference session to prayerfully review the presentations that were made at TOSC and then ask the Holy Spirit to help them know God's will. Um, and also recommending that every member do the same thing. So that's one of the reasons we've had this symposium and this is why we're having this town hall discussion. All the presentations have now been made I think there's only one person or two people that are missing from our panel, maybe three, that are missing four, actually four people tonight. Um, so, but this is fairly reflective. You'll notice that Pastor Bohr is not here, um, but you can look at his presentation and all the others that might be missing. This is the counsel also that Elder Wilson gave. Look to see how the papers and presentations were based on an understanding of a clear reading of scripture. So two things in that. You need to read the scriptures to see what he's talking about or what has been studied. And secondly, to see what the thoughts were and see if they make sense. Then also, uh, he says this, the spirit of prophecy tells us that we are to take the Bible just as it reads. And then a quotation uh, in that interview from Ellen White. The language of the Bible should be explained according to its obvious meaning unless a symbol or figure is employed. So I think this is very wise counsel from the, uh, the General Conference. Now one other thing, the North American Division, which is where we uh, all reside that are here um, in this particular discussion, had this to say. Um, in their North American Division Theology of Ordination uh, report, and I quote, We believe that an individual, as a Seventh-day Adventist, in thorough commitment to a full authority of Scripture, may build a defensible case in favor or in opposition to the ordination of women in the gospel ministry, although each of us views one position or the other as stronger and more compelling. I'm going to use that as a question, actually, for our committee tonight. 
I'm going to throw that out to you, but I just am bringing it up as we introduce things to say that what I, the way I read that statement is the North American division is wanting to affirm you in whatever position you take. So you should not feel uh, awkward in answering or fully studying at this time in the process of looking at women's ordination. Does that make sense to my panelists as well? Now, uh, I would say that this symposium that started on Wednesday night, um, this is now Saturday night for those of you watching later, so we had a keynote on Wednesday night, then Thursday and Friday, and then this Sabbath we had several presentations. So far has received over 300,000 hits on Facebook and various websites. Uh, one Facebook site alone had 96,000 hits. By the time you're watching this at home or wherever you are, could be into the millions. I looked at some of the feedback that came from the websites and uh, associated with various speakers, and there were, <laughs> there were things, uh, there was a, a, a great difference in the responses to various presentations. Um, <clears throat> but I'll just share one positive one. Uh, they were mostly positive, I might say, um, but because this issue was so charged, there, there were another, another few, and it's good to have hot and cold treatments, amen? So you want to have, <clears throat> you want to keep yourself healthy, so I try and, you know, look at the positive and the negative. What a blessing these have been, wrote someone. I believe with all my heart that these messages are a testimony against those members who would seek to destroy God's church. Well, you can tell where they're coming from. What a blessing to hear the Word of God expounded, said another person, in such powerful ways. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and then there were some less positive statements, which you could probably find yourself on the Internet if you'd like to look for them. Now, one thing I wanted to bring up before we get started again, because we do have a two-hour uh, town hall meeting. I'm looking forward to it, aren't you? But you might want to, you know, get something to uh, eat or drink that's nearby. You're not want to get out of your chair. One thing I wanted to bring up as we start as well is that, you know, there were three position papers that came out of the Theology of Ordination Study Committee. And this committee, I think it's fair to say, is more linked to one of those statements than the other. There's three of them. And I would say that this panel discussion uh, th there are people that believe in and have supported, either on the committee or from afar, position statement number one. And each, uh, if you go to the website, um, they'll put uh, it up on the screen for you, Theology of Ordination Study Committee, they'll give you the link. If you go to the website, right now, you know, it's administarchives.org, and you can find all the various reports but I wanted to read one, the position statement number one because we spent so many hours on that statement and we want you to read it. We want you to put a link on your Facebook page or your MySpace or your Instagram or whatever you link with. Send it out near and wide so that people can read this. And the reason I want to read it now is because it actually answers many of the questions that I saw coming in, okay? Um, would you like to hear that statement? Yeah. All right. Um, it's called the way forward position, uh, position number one. We're kind of pleased that they put us as number one. Uh, we're not making too much out of that. 
We're at least in the top three and we're in position number one at this point. <laughs> the way forward statement, here it is. To remain faithful to scripture, to reaffirm and further promote women in ministry, and to preserve Bible-based unity in the church, we recommend the following for consideration by the General Conference in full session. I like it so far. How many of you like it so far? Number one, reaffirm and encourage with public recognition and licensure women whom God has called to gospel work. I like that. How many of you like that? Number two, provide enhanced access to educational opportunities for women in gospel work and ensure fair and just treatment upon their placement in ministry. Amen? Okay. Um, was expecting a few more amens from those who worked on the statement, but that's okay. Number three, promote the greater development of various lines of ministry for women according to their spiritual gifts, including but not limited to personal and public evangelism, teaching, preaching, ministering to families, counseling, medical missionary work, departmental leadership, etc. That's pretty good. What do you think? That's not an exhaustive list because it says etc. There could be many more things. While increasing opportunities for women in ministry, we also recommend that, number four, we retain the church, retain the scriptural practice of ordaining, commissioning only qualified men to the office of pastor minister throughout the world church in harmony with the consistent example of Christ, the apostles, and the Adventist pioneers. And number five, return to the biblical practice of electing and ordaining only men to the office of local elder throughout the world church while providing for women to serve as unordained church leaders under certain circumstances. Um, and by the way, as we discussed that, I might just add a caveat, uh, that's already what's done in places where they actually believe that uh, men should be ordained to elder and pastor, like in the Philippines. So they have, um, and, and I'll show you why that is as this statement goes on. What do you think so far? That's actually answered about 10 of the questions that came in. Here is a, uh, here, the second part of that way forward statement, it calls, it's a, a line that says, support and other considerations. God calls women, this is again a quote, to both full and part-time ministry. Then a bunch of quotations you can look up. The lines of service in which women may work are broad and far-reaching. A whole bunch of quotes if you want to look those up from the Bible and also the spirit of prophecy. For its mission, the church must make full use of the indispensable role of women in the ministry of the church. Then a quote. Women can do in families a work that men cannot do, a work that reaches the inner life. They can come close to the hearts of those whom men cannot reach. Their work is needed. Christian Service, page 27. The church should issue an appropriate license with equitable compensation to qualified women, quote, although the hands of ordination have not been laid upon them. And then a number of quotations you can read. Although both men and women are called to various lines of ministry, the Bible consistently assigns the office of local elder and or pastor minister to faithful men who satisfy the scriptural requirements. 
see the examples of Jesus and the early church as well as Paul's instruction. Then a whole bunch of texts for you to look up. This assignment, rather than being based on culture, is grounded by Paul in the male spiritual leadership role established at creation and reaffirmed after the fall. A whole bunch of texts to look up again. While spiritual gifts include pastoral care, this is not equivalent to the biblical office of elder that is today often referred to as, quote, pastor, unquote. Ordination involves a call from God and recognition by the church regionally in harmony with the church globally. Ordination to the office of pastor minister grants full ecclesiastical authority to establish new churches, ordain local elders, baptize converts, and lead out in the ordinances of the church in cooperation with the local conference. In certain circumstances, a woman may serve as a local church leader, Church Manual 75 and 76, without being ordained as an elder. Allowing regionally established beliefs or qualifications for ordination would fracture the church, create confusion and disunity, and set a dangerous precedent. It would remove an important protection from non-biblical cultural influences and move the church toward becoming an association of national churches instead of a united world church. Global unity, global church unity, can be preserved only by yielding to the plain and obvious meaning of Scripture, rejecting higher criticism or other methods of Bible study that give the reader authority over the divinely inspired text. Jesus is our example of servant leadership. His life expresses the loving authority and submission that exists in God's family in heaven and on earth. That's the way forward statement that was presented. So that should answer a bunch of questions right there, but maybe I read it too quickly for those of you here or those that are watching. So I would encourage you to go to the archives. Uh, we'll put that up on the screen, hopefully eventually when this is edited. And you can go there and you can click on it. You can download that yourself and look up all of those quotations. That is a condensation of uh, hours, uh, untold hours. Uh, I happen to be on that writing committee, and some of the people here that are smiling wearily at me were there as well. And it, it was untold revisions and hours. And, and I'm, one of the reasons I'm reading it too is I hope that someone reads it. <laughs> okay? So if even I, just me reading, I mean, th that was worth doing this tonight. Okay, so now, uh, some ground rules for, my, for my, uh, my panelists here. We have a number of questions, 40 or so, and we have a, you know, a limited amount of time. What I want from you was you to condense your wisdom into uh, sound bites. Well, why, why do I say that? Because if you talk too long, I won't be able to remember what you were saying. That's one reason. And, and secondly, we do have a lot of questions to go through. Now, that doesn't mean we don't want to hear from you. But we want to hear also from all of you. So um, perhaps I should acknowledge you before you begin speaking. That way I can make sure. How many like to hear from each one of them? So we want to hear from all of you. 
and uh, and I might even have a few things to say too. You never know. Well, let's pray together before we look at these questions. Father in heaven, we're thankful tonight that we can come and, and discuss this important topic. We are glad that uh, you love us, that you came and uh, came to this planet, grew up, lived, died, resurrected, ministering in the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf, ever living to make intercession. And uh, you long for us to respond to you. You uh, died for us while we were yet enemies. And certainly, even as we study this issue, we want to have a spirit of grace and we want to have a spirit of forthrightness, but a spirit that telegraphs that we love one another and that we won't allow any issue to come between us if we can help it. So through this uh, town hall meeting, we ask that perhaps there could be some clarity that comes that even helps us to that end. We thank you. We come in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. You know, I tried to organize these questions in different factions, but then so many started coming in. I'm just going to go rapid fire through the questions I have. I want to start with some simple ones first. And uh, someone wrote in, a number of people actually, and they ask a, a similar set of questions. And here it is. And I know that you can go on and on about this, but this is a simple question. What are the biblical scriptural qualifications for ordination? I don't know why someone will write that in, but they probably could listen to our whole symposium. But just simply put, if, and, and perhaps uh, just point to a text to us. Who wants to handle that? What are the biblical qualifications for ordination? All right. Do I appoint someone? 1 Timothy 2 and 3 states it accurately and concisely. So does Titus chapter 1. Okay. I would direct the questioner to read those passages. All right. That was good. Let's move forward. Second question. In listening to the talk about 1 Timothy, I have a question. Wasn't this just a local problem in Ephesus? Wasn't it dealing with something that was just specific there? How can we broaden this to everyone everywhere? Now, Ingo, you should take first shot at that question, Dr. Sorke. Oh, by the way, I didn't let you introduce yourselves. So introduce yourself before you answer the questions. Go ahead. Ingo Sorke from uh, Keene, Texas. When, when Paul writes letters, they naturally have to be specific letters. He's not sitting in a university office writing a lexicon article. He's writing to a person. But we do have pointers in the text, for example, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, where he uses the word churches. His counsel to that church is for plural churches. We have the example in a Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where a specific letter to a specific church then is expanded by the Holy Spirit to a plurality of churches. Uh, we have uh, Paul telling us in 1 Corinthians 10 that these past examples from the Exodus are specifically for us in the end times. So it's very dangerous to, to limit biblical counsel to just a specific situation. Uh, the other problem is with this Ephesian theory, you look through the commentaries, 
scholars do not agree what that situation is. So if we artificially construct a specific situation with Timothy, Ephesus, and Paul, which scholar do we follow? And uh, fortunately, we don't have to uh, fall into guesswork. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that his reasoning goes back to creation and Adam, number one, and then to the curse. So a lot of the, the questions we have, what is the situation, the context is answered within the text itself. Okay, can I follow up on that? Because sure. there was another question that came in. One of the people that uh, presented at the general conference task meeting presented a full paper on this, and, um, and this person referenced that paper in this question. So you've thought a lot about that paper because this was your counterpart that was presenting on the same sure. thing. The concern of this passage is not about women serving in ministry or as local church elders, much less about ordination, since these were not issues in the congregation in Ephesus. So how can you then apply it to ordination today, since that's not what they were dealing with in Ephesus? Well, when we use that phrase, the plain reading of Scripture, it is not an ignorant reading. Uh, it's not an isolated reading. Look at the, at the context of 1 Timothy, the entire letter. It directly addresses the elders and Acts 14, 23, Titus chapter 1, verse 5 does address elders as being ordained. So I would counter that the text itself talks about the role of men, the role of women, and specifically that of, of the office of elders. Okay. And it seemed to be there were some teachers that had gone astray that were very high up there, and they needed to be straightened out. Okay, thank you. Well, let's go on um, to another question here. Um, what about the statement, and I want to direct this, uh, well, I'll, I'll, whoever wants to take a shot at it. I think Dr. O, and you can introduce yourself when you start out on this because you made a presentation on it. What about the statement of Ellen White when she says, it is the accompaniment of the Holy Spirit of God that prepares workers, both men and women, to become pastors of the flock of God, Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, 723. Uh, that seems like Ellen White is saying it's a gift of the Spirit and ladies can be pastors. Um, we ha I affirm that that is absolutely right. Could you introduce yourself oh, and where I'm you're sorry. from? My name is I'm Dr. Isaac Olatunji from Huntsville, Alabama. I'm absolutely right. Now, um, the Spirit of Prophecy also talks about the qualifications of an elder in connection with 1 Timothy chapter 3 and where she uses the term men, his, and he. And at the time when she was writing that, there were no women elders in the Adventist church at that time, so she was not referring to um, um, just women and men, but men exclusively um, to the office of an elder. Pastorship is simply a spiritual gift. A person can do pastoral labor, visiting the flock, um, praying with people, ministering to the needs of the congregation without necessarily um, having the title of a bishop or elder from a spiritual gift standpoint. Now, all elders and bishops did pastoral labor, but not all that did pastoral labor were bishops or elders. And Ellen G. White talks about the, um, the, the, the membership doing pastoral labor in connection with the ministry. 
Okay, thank you. Thank you. Th uh, this can probably not be emphasized too, too much. You do not have to be ordained to engage in ministry. And let me um, add that pastoral labor is broader than just being a bishop over a church. You have chaplaincy, you have Bible work, you have deacon, deaconess work, which is visitation work, which is pastoral in nature. So, yes, a woman can be a pastor within that context. Okay. Thank you. Um, some have taught, here's another question, that the Adventist pioneers early on in Adventist history were very pro-women in ministry and would have or could have or would have ordained them if the time had been right. Uh, is that true or is that false? Who wants to take that on? Someone that has not yet spoken. And please introduce yourself. My name is Deutschen Zivadinovich. I'm from Andrews University. Uh, our pioneers have been actually very much in favor of women in ministry. Now, when we talk about ministry, we talk about the work of uh, spreading the gospel. There's different different ways women worked in our early church in ministry, like visitation ministry was something very, very important. And much more visiting. Today we complain how pastor doesn't visit the members. Well, before, didn't have to visit so much members. Uh, he did, but because a lot of lay people were in the ministry of visitation. It's called a special uh, visitation ministry, was called. Um, and there's one article in Signs of the Times in 1878 that editorial board of this, the article, which means this is pretty much the position of the entire uh, magazine, which was James White, uh, Jay Wagoner, Uriah Smith. They actually agreed in saying that First Timothy and First Corinthians talk about some kind of teaching and speaking that is prohibited to women. And they say, well, in the rest of the Bible, women were teaching and speaking and praying and prophesying. Check 1 Corinthians 11. So why are they prohibited from speaking and teaching here? And they say, in the context of the teaching is authority over men. It's always judging the prophets in 1 Corinthians 14, which is only for the elders of the church. And in 1 Timothy 2, it's authority, exercising authority of men and then describing that who is the teacher? The bishop. So it's in the context always that it, 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 women can teach. First uh, Titus chapter, chapter 2, uh, verse 5, women can teach, but this is in the context of teaching in a, an authority, of exercising authority over the men, and this is the headship authority, and this is prohibited to women, and that's why Paul is saying that in this context, that kind of teaching is prohibited, and that's, in this article, our pioneers affirm that, and then later there's another article in 1895 where our pioneers affirm that one more time. So yes, our pioneers were in favor of women in ministry, but there was ministry for men and there's ministries for women. Please introduce yourself before you sound off. Uh, Raymond Holmes, retired seminary professor Still working, by the way. Uh, the times have nothing to do with it. Because no matter what the times are, it doesn't change 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Okay, go ahead. It is true that we had many women. Oh, this uh, Laurel Domsteekt from uh, Bering Springs, Michigan. It is true that we had women that were very active in our church 
and all of us ought to be very active in our church. It's a beautiful thing when people are very active in the church. Uh, one of my favorite characters is uh, Mrs. S. M. I. Henry, who was actually a convert, who was one of the evangelists from the WCTU years, who Ellen White told to address the crowd whenever she could. Um, they, she had a wonderful relationship with Mrs. White. They never met, but they wrote back and forth, and their correspondence ought to be published because it's so classic and so beautiful. Uh, Mrs. S.M.I. Henry was a very strong worker. She worked and uh, preached at the camp meetings and discussed and counseled with the women. She had a, a column every week in the review, women's work. And, but it's not like what we would think would be women's work today. It was all, how can I reach my neighbors? At 12 o'clock, let's have a prayer, prayer time together. Every day, we're all going to unitedly pray. And how can I reach this? And, and what do I do about it? You know, just beautiful, beautiful writings on how to deal with different people. So that's Mrs. S. My Henry, who was very powerful. And by the way, not for women's ordination, because we know that that from her daughter's book, um, in which she was talking to Frances Willard, who was the number one person at the WCTU, and Mrs. Willard, uh, Miss Willard, Frances Willard, said to her, "Well, I suppose you are thinking about becoming a uh, go to the seminaries and challenge the young men there." Something I'm paraphrasing here, but she said, "I shrank from the idea because, like my mother." Um, I, we don't feel comfortable with that. And so we know people like Mrs. S. and my Henry was, were very, very powerful and very instrumental for the Lord. Other people like uh, Hetty Haskell, who was on the front line of evangelism, giving Bible studies, teaching people how to learn uh, and, and work in the home, how to do uh, cooking classes, working very closely with her husband, having a whole group of people living in her home while she's teaching all of this, uh, doing evangelistic meetings. Um, very, very hardworking, wonderful, strong lay person working right alongside with her husband. Um, and one of the people that Mrs. White talked about who ought to be getting salary. So we have these models of women who were very, very powerful and who did a wonderful work with the Lord. And uh, so, but none of these were ordained. They all uh, were really, really strong workers, but didn't need the ordination. Okay. All right. I want to make another uh, another observation with that, and it comes from another question that was referencing yet another um, whole paper that was presented at TOS that gives kind of a different idea concerning what you've just said. And so they sent this in, and they asked this question. Um, <laughs> The interpretation of Ellen White's testimonies and writings cannot be static because we must understand the times and circumstances that led her to say what she did and learn from them principles guiding our thinking and actions today. A statement written many years ago may not necessarily have the same force or even relevance as it did then. Attempting to explain how to use her writings, she stated in 1911 that the context of her thoughts is very important, and then comes the statement. Regarding the testimonies, nothing is ignored, nothing is cast aside, but time and place 
must be considered. And then the question, isn't it a different time? Isn't it a different place? And shouldn't we consider that? And I know it's exactly the opposite of what Dr. Holmes just said, but uh, Dr. Mills is raising his hand and seeking uh, amplification of his voice. Could you uh, introduce who you are, first of all? Yes, I'm a physician and dermatologist in North Georgia. But it's true, time and place must be taken into consideration, not our time and place, but her time and place. What she said, who she said it to, and what the circumstances were. And that's true of Scripture. Uh, we want to understand as much as possible the time and the place so that we can understand what we should be doing at this time and in our place. Okay. Yeah, did you have something else to say about that, or did you? I did. Okay, please introduce yourself and, and tell us what you presented here on our symposium and then address the question. All right, my name is Alan Davis. I'm from Auburn, California, and I gave a talk on the comparison, a looking at theology and culture and how it relates to this debate okay. regarding ordination. One of the things I wanted to look at really quickly here in terms of this issue is I think Ecclesiastes 1.9 kind of sums it up. There is no new thing under the sun. And Malachi 3.6 says, the Lord, I am the Lord, I change not. And there's this move afoot that I have seen in my conversations with some of the world leaders through my dissertation research is that because the context of the scripture was a different time and a different place, we can draw out the principles, but they can no longer be used for prescription. Well, let me think about this here for a moment. If I offend my brother or my sister, or he or she, me, doesn't Matthew 18:15 apply? Or is the principle the only thing that matters? So I think that the scripture is indeed prescriptive, and we have to look at it within its general context. And we take a look at, are the principles relevant, yes or no? And then how do I apply them in my context? And at the end of the day, I have to look, am I submitted to the entire word of Scripture or only that which I find relevant in this postmodern era? Okay, I think this is a very important line of discussion. And let me just say to our panelists here, when you're answering the questions and when we're talking, I want you to be thinking about the kind of arguments people are going to be encountering in their local churches. Because a number of folks that wrote in, they said, well, um, well, I'll just bring that question up right now to help focus this a little more. Um, let's see if I can find it. I'll just tell you what it is, and then I won't ask it later. Uh, their question was, I believe what the Bible teaches about ordination of women and that they should not be ordained to the office of elder or pastor. But my pastor does not agree and takes every opportunity to point out that what I'm saying is wrong and gives all kinds of examples. What do I do in that kind of situation? You hold firm to the word. Amen. 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 You hold firm to the word. If it was um, a Baptist who was convicted about the Sabbath, and I believe that the seven days of Sabbath of my pastor is doing the same thing you're talking about, just mentioned, Brother uh, McIntosh, you have to stand on the word. Okay, would you like me to give you some examples of what the pastor is saying? Yes. Okay, here's what the pastor is saying. From many scriptures, we uh, use a hermeneutic or a way of understanding them that interprets the text in a way that may not be the plain or literal reading. So the pastor then said, and 
John, we have not heard from you, so you're going to be answering this. The pastor said, <clears throat> in Mark 16, 18, it describes handling snakes and drinking poison. Should we do that today? A plain, literal reading of the text. Should we be snake handling like people do in some religious groups? In Matthew 8, 22, Jesus said the dead are to bury the dead. So should we not have funerals taking that literally? Jesus in 1 Peter 3.19 is said to be preaching to the spirits in prison. Do we take that literally or what was really happening there? And so he had a list that he brought out in the prayer meeting. What are you going to say? What are you going to do? Please introduce yourself and give us an answer. John Peters, uh, pastor in Pennsylvania. And uh, as we've already uh, alluded to, there are there are principles that run throughout Scripture that um, that we we base our our interpretations upon. And so, if there are applications of those principles, we we look at those as well. But sometimes the applications vary depending upon the times that we're in. Now we have discussed that before. Now the examples that you have given are simply. Uh, there are no general principles there that, um, well, in the case of snakes and serpents and so on and drinking poison, the principle might be, uh, yes, God will protect you if you're doing his work in certain cases. But that doesn't mean that we uh, presume upon God that he's going to protect us. So that, that was one of the, the, the temptations that came to Christ, by the way, the temptation of presuming upon God that he would protect him when he jumped off the, if he would jump off the uh, temple tower. So we don't, uh, we don't presume upon God. There are some principles that we follow, and one of them is not to presume upon God. So going back to the general issue of hermeneutics. Um, or how to study the Bible. Or how to study the Bible, yeah. We, we follow the, the basic uh, uh, philosophy that has been given to us, the principles that have been given to us in the writings of Ellen White. We find them in the introduction to the Great Controversy, for example. Uh, we can find them in the Rio document, the, uh, the 1986 Rio document, the Methods of Bible Study Interpretation. And those, those can be summarized perhaps in just two general ideas. And one of them is to take the plain, clear meaning of uh, the scripture that you're, if the text is clear, and you see a, a principle associated with that text that runs throughout scripture like headship, and you see it in Genesis, you see it throughout the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament, all the way into Revelation, uh, you, you follow that principle. And you, you interpret a scripture, in this case, male headship, based on that principle, principle because it runs throughout scripture. And Paul gives the justification of Adam was formed first, for example, and Eve second. Okay. So, okay. Through? But there are other methods of interpreting scripture. For example, the, um, the principle-based method that uh, the NAD espoused, and they openly confessed that they, uh, they adopted for a certain troublesome text a new method of interpretation because they could not accept the plain reading of the text. So to understand the text they wanted to, the way they wanted to understand it, in this case, the reader would have authority over the text rather than the text having authority over the reader, they adopted a new hermeneutic or a new method of interpretation 
which they identified as a principle-based cultural, historical, linguistic uh, reading strategy. And so they would use this for all these texts that dealt with women in ministry, or specifically women in positions of uh, office of elder and so on. So this is basically a higher critical technique of interpreting the Bible. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church has consistently uh, rejected that method of interpretation. Okay, quick, quick, quick. Go ahead on this issue. And remember, this is a sister who wrote the question in who's trying to be faithful to the plain reading of Scripture in this issue, and she's getting an attack in public, and she actually put in her note to me, should I leave that church? I love all the people there. I've been there for years. This pastor has come, and, and he's being backed up by other people, even in administration, and I feel like I'm being persecuted. What should I do? In your, whatever you're going to say, make sure you're addressing the pastoral concern here. All right? Specifically in the case of uh, handling poisonous snakes, drinking poison, the pastor misquoted scripture. It does not say it as a command. Matthew 28, 17, the some of the disciples are still doubting after the resurrection. Jesus specifically tells the disciples when this and this happens, you can have faith, but do not go out to, to a rattlesnake roundup in Texas and handle these snakes. <laughs> Uh, without some skill. Uh, from a pastoral level, uh, that means it's time to pray and ask God, is, is this a church where the Bible is being taught, but my actions must be in love and carefully considered over time, not, not just a rash action. Dr. Holmes? You know, these kind of comments and questions really absolutely astound me because I came out of the evangelical background, you know, as a Lutheran. When I went to the seminary, still a Lutheran, had, and met with seminary faculty on Wednesday evenings for many, many weeks, these are the kind of questions that I asked concerning the Sabbath. Right. You know, and you know, you know, isn't the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, a part of the culture of the Jews? It was. And they showed me from Scripture where God sanctified the seventh day and he never changed it. Well, are we supposed to reverse our arguments now when it comes to this issue? It makes me wonder... You know, was I being deceived back there in the early 1970s, or am I being deceived now by these kind of arguments? So you know, what would you say? What, what would you say to the dear sister? Keep asking Amen. and keep pressing. All right, Dr. O. What I would say to her is, um, you know, that he, he sounds like somebody that doesn't want to be convinced, that's not open-minded. His mind is made up that this is what he wants. So what happens, you got to understand that um, you're not, the Bible says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also <laughs> be like him. But then he says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. Um, the spirit of prophecy in the Bible gives the answers to those things. And if he's a well-read seven-day administrator, he can go right there, and those texts will show you what he means. But what happens is 
I would tell her to just go to the lovely Jesus and he would tell her exactly what to do in terms of whether she should leave or whether she should stay. Okay. You know, there's, there are two panelists who have avoided being spokesmen for the cause so far. So I'm going to put it before them coming up, and that would be uh, Kevin Paulson, who is one of our presenters. And uh, then we also have, uh, let's see, Dr. Veloso. Uh, you, you guys have avoided so far. And so this question is specifically for one of you, uh, if you can take it on. Didn't we used to do things the right way concerning this issue? Why did we ever change? Someone wrote in. Kevin Paulson, Berrien Springs, Michigan. I, I'm not entirely sure what the questioner is talking about. What did we always do? Did we always ordain women to the gospel ministry? Obviously, that has not happened. No, the question is, didn't we used to do things the way the Bible said we should? In other words, the questioner is saying, we never have ordained people till now. Why is it that we are changing now? Well, um, I, I would agree with that. The fact is that um, there is certainly no evidence that denying ordination to women has retarded the progress of the work. Those regions of the world church where the um, ordination of women is not being agitated are the regions that are growing the fastest. Those where the issue of women's ordination is being agitated the most are those where the church's growth is the most sluggish. Right. So it's difficult to understand uh, why there are individuals who think that if we could only have complete gender equality in ministry, we would somehow unleash the Holy Spirit and, 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 and bring on the latter rain. Because certainly in those parts of the world where women are not, where the agitation is the least and where it is non-existent in many cases are also those where the work is growing and where both men and women are working together. Okay, to thank further you. the progress of the work. How many of you think work? that's a sufficient answer? Um, uh, and I don't think, I guess my observation, simply put, is that we didn't change. We're discussing things right now, right? Yeah. Go ahead. Let me say something on this very issue. Actually, uh, the first point is exactly what you said. We haven't changed. What we have is a big discussion about it. Uh, and this discussion began uh, in, at the beginning of the 70s. Right. And did you make a whole presentation on this? Yes, I did. And I would point those watching to that whole presentation, but encapsulate it for us. Yeah. The, uh, there was a, a, a report in 1968 which was unanimous. Uh, answering the question whether there was based biblically on spirit of prophecy based to ordain women, the answer was no. Then the whole discussion began. And it began because there were, particularly in Europe and United States, a group of people who were already made their minds that we needed to ordain women. And uh, this was behind the uh, beginning of the discussion. And then a meeting was called 
appointed the committee to answer the general question of the we, what, what positions could women have in the church? And, uh, but that actually we never answered, and we began the discussion of overordination, which is not yet finished. We haven't decided to ordain women yet. So far, those who have been ordained are not really accepted by the church, but only locally. And uh, we hope that uh, this discussion is going to come to an end in the next GC session, uh, uh, 2015. No, and I, I need to comment here. So I let him do that without the acknowledgement of the chair? How many, let's take a vote. <laughs> Go ahead, but make it brief, and let's not break that precedent too often, or else I'll feel like I don't have a job. Go ahead. The comment was made that uh, we really haven't changed. Well, maybe we haven't changed on the issue of ordination, but in fact, we have changed. And we have changed because the uh, policy was adopted that allowed women to be employed as commissioned ministers or commissioned pastors. And there is virtually no difference between a commissioned woman pastor and an ordained woman pa pastor, except that a commissioned woman pastor cannot uh, pastor in other fields. She, she's limited to the local field. So, so that was a policy that was in the North American division? Well, it's, I'll let Maria Veloso comment on the exact nature of that policy. But it is prevalent, and certainly in North America, where we are hiring and commissioning women as pastors. And there is no, they're doing everything that an ordained minister does, except they're, they're limited to their particular local field. So the issue is not ordination as such, because in this case, ordination and commissioning is virtually the, almost identical. So the issue comes down again to who is qualified, what does the Bible say about who is qualified to serve as elder or elder minister? And that is the, the essence of the issue. So in 2015, the question cannot be, or the motion cannot be related to ordination. It must be, it must be related specifically to the elder minister office. Yes. The office of elder minister. And what does the Bible say? Who is qualified? What does the Bible say about who is qualified to fill that office? Okay, thank you. Let's move on to another question. And uh, let's give crisp answers. This is now session or section number two. In other words, some of you that have already spoken, everyone's spoken once. How many think that's great? And now we're going to go back now for round two in terms of uh, ability to answer questions. Um, why do you think the issue, this issue, is important to think about globally and not just locally? So if someone wants to know, you know, uh, what, uh, you heard the question. Does anyone want to take a shot at that? I can add another one to it if you would like. No, no, I just, well, I'll just go with that. Is it important to think about this globally and not just locally? In other words, why can't you just let people go their own way in some section of the area, uh, some section of the world, I guess is another way to answer, ask their question. This is a biblical issue, and the Bible applies in Papua New Guinea, in Kathmandu, Nepal, and in Loma Linda, California equally. 
Okay. And, and therefore, there can be no difference in the church's ordination policy. Um, if a person is ordained to the gospel ministry in the Seventh-day Adventist church, that ordination applies globally. Thank you, Kevin. I want to give someone else a chance at that, but I want to add something to it. Another person wrote this in. My, uh, and I don't know, it was an administrator in his area. They said this, that the World Church denied women's ordination in 1990 because of, quote, in view of the possible risk of disunity, dissension, and diversion from the mission of the church, and then also it was considered to be probably best and least disruptive for the world church at this time. So the reason that was given was not a theological or biblical reason, but an administrative reason. Why are you trying to make it a theological issue? We are not trying to make it. It is. Amen. Uh, and being a biblically based uh, matter, uh, the, the question is wrong. It should be why we are making it not theological when actually it's coming from the Bible as a doctrine. Mm -hmm. They have to answer that question. Okay. And going into another thing is this. Um, the ordination, the first ordination that was made uh, by the Christian church for a pastoral ministry or evangelical ministry was in Antioch, Paul okay. and Barnabas. Okay. And they were for the whole world. Okay. It was not just for the division based in that place. It was for the whole world. And that is our model. Okay, uh, one more on this, or two more? I uh, want to answer the well, question well, well, by well, asking a question. Okay. AIDS before beauty. Go ahead. If a part of the church decided that keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath is inconvenient, right. let's go along with the rest of the church on, and keep Sunday as the Lord's Day, what would we do? Okay, that's going to bring us to another question, but go ahead. It has to be a global consideration because the issue of ordination affects humans on their most fundamental level of existence, and that is gender and the image of God. Okay. Thank you. Now, uh, uh, Laurel Domstig, there were a couple questions that uh, came in um, that I want to uh, focus on you. Um, there were some people that were listening, and actually a number of uh, blogs that responded to your presentation, even though it was only hours ago. You evidently struck a chord um, with many people. You got their attention, and so there were a number of things to come together, so I'm going to bring these together, um, and I'll just start out here. <laughs> I understand in your presentation that the impact, uh, the, the name of your presentation is the impact of spiritualism on feminism and gender issues today, implied that all the goals of women's rights, women's rights movements are evil and satanic. So does that really reflect your opinion or view? And another person said, how can you say that spiritualists, how can you pick and choose? Because spiritualists, <laughs> this, is, this is just the question that came in. Don't shoot me. Spiritualists 
actually did, quote, a lot of good things. They called for the abolition of slavery. They had temperance activities and whatnot. So how can you pick out of the things that they did, women's ordination, and not acknowledge the many good things they did? So those are the two questions. Good luck. <laughs> Number one, I do not believe that everything that women's rights movement leaders were after was wrong. Um, they did do a lot of good things. I, there were, you know, the women have uh, been slaves in these factories, and some of the stories that you could read of history are abominable. And there's still situations that are really, really bad. And we are not talking about that. They did a good job in, in helping people become aware of such abuse and cruelty. So there is nothing I, I want to say more strongly than th that's what I was not talking about. What I did talk about was the connections that, and I was very specific on the quotes and the persons that I used to talk about spiritualism. And so um, I would just encourage you to go back and listen to what I really said if you thought that I was really um, believing that. Um, as far as spiritualists um, believing in good things, um, I have really nothing to say about that either because spiritualists, I'm sure uh, a lot of New Agers believe in vegetarianism and I certainly wouldn't fault them for the vegetarianism. I would fault them for their motives behind it. Um, but just because somebody believes in temperance or something like that, I'm not gonna argue what they believe in, but why they believe in it and take it from that angle. So I hope that's good enough. Okay, so you wanna add to this? Okay, Dr. Mills. Uh, you know, you could go into a uh, liquor store and there is uh, good in liquor, there's water. Um, <laughs> but uh, it would be missing the point to talk about the good that's in liquor. Amen, and, uh, and I don't think that's what Laura was doing. Okay, uh, Laurel, another question for you since you're already warmed up here and your frontal lobe is pulsating. Uh, I'll just add another one in here. Uh, because it appears in your presentation that you think feminism is of the devil, do you believe that it is wrong for women to vote? It depends. I don't think it's wrong for women to vote by... If, but I do believe what Ellen White said about women voting, that they ought to know what they're voting about. Amen. Okay? Amen. And that's that goes for men, men too. I was just going to say okay? that's true for men. I mean, there's no sense for me to look and just, you know, be a person that goes to the polls not knowing the issues and what I'm voting about. And Ellen White was very specific about that, and she said that they should know what they're, they're voting about. And each one of us, when we go to the polls, need to understand the issues, what the people are standing for, and vote intelligently. And yes, I do vote. Who did you vote for in the, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is a question uh, for the folks that have dealt with culture, um, Dr. O and uh, Alan, uh, Davis as well. 
Here's the question. In some areas of the world, cultures are matriarchal, and that's the way they have been, and it works, it seems, very well for them. How in the world would you go to those cultures and change them in this way? Why would I want to go and change them? I'm not the one to be asked okay. questions. Okay, well, <laughs> whether, whether a, 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 a economy of, of thought is matriarchal or not, we have to uphold biblical principles. Mm -hmm. And really, if you're really going to be honest about it, the biblical principle was a patriarchal society where the man was the head and the way God made men and the way God made women. But if I'm going into a patriarchal society, um, a matriarchal, matri excuse me, matriarchal society. That's a, a broad, such a broad question. That doesn't change God's will in this matter. There are cultures that are. Um, there's a there's there's a culture in this country that's geared towards Sunday worship. We have to teach the gospel, teach the truth, regardless. Okay, uh, Dr. Davis. Yeah, one of the things I think about in terms of that issue alone, uh, just taking a look at where the Lord had placed Israel, which was a patriarchal society many of the surrounding nations were opposite. They were antithetical to what God had established in the Hebrew economy. In particular with a matriarchal society, one of the things we need to understand, if we want to effectively promote the gospel, we need to understand the culture in which we're going to operate. Mm -hmm. We just can't go blindly into a culture. For example, those of us who are North American raised can't think that we're going to go over to China and take what we've done here and what we've learned and superimpose it on that culture. We've seen the debacle that's ensued with trying to take U.S. diplomacy and project it on Afghanistan, for example. That doesn't necessarily work because the cultures are out of sync. So we need to educate ourselves. We need to consecrate ourselves to what the Bible has to say and do not equivocate. Hold, hold fast. And that's what Paul admonishes us to do all the time, is be steadfast okay. in season, out of season. I'm going to move to the next one because we got a lot of questions, unless this is so important that yep. to it, me is. it is. Okay, for you it is. <laughs> yeah. I'm powerless then. But Go ahead. We are talking about church governance, mm. not civil governance. Right. right. That's right. right. If we go trying to superimpose the church governance into the civil governance, then we get into trouble, trouble yes. and difficulties. In the church, we are talking about the spiritual leadership of the church, and that is, uh, must be according to the scriptures. Okay, I want to move to another question. What is the scriptural basis for transferring headship in the home to headship in the church. My friends are asking me this question. I need to have a good answer. How do you transfer that from the home to the church? 1 Corinthians 11.3. Uh, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Dr. Sorke, then Deutschen, and then moving to the middle. Go good, good, good text. Uh, I like to use 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Um, if a man... It's actually verse 5. If a man cannot manage his household, how can he rule the church? And that is not the only text where we're taking care of your home 
is prerequisite for taking care of the church. Mm -hmm. Okay? I mean, there are multiple places where and why it says that the family is a small church. And if the father cannot uh, manage small church in his home, how can he manage a big church in, in, in the big church? There is five manuscript releases, uh, 449, etc. But there is also this concept in the New Testament that the church is not just a spiritual idea. The church is actually a social community. People call each other brothers and sisters because it's a family. They actually, in Acts chapter 2, share everything in common. They're supposed to because that's what brothers and sisters do. They share everything in common. This is a family. Once you enter here, there's fathers and elders, so-called, and mothers and brothers and sisters. And those who are heads of the families in, I don't know, 8865 Grove Street, Berrien Springs, that house, when you come to PMC Church, it's the same house. So the heads of different families, when they come to a big family, who are you going to choose be a head of the big family? You choose among the heads of the small families. You don't choose a head to be that someone who is not even head in his own house. Okay, good. Excellent. Uh, we could spend a, a tiny bit more time on this because there were a number of people asking, and I'm going to throw another question in before you answer more about this headship transfer. One other person wrote in, directed to uh, Mrs. Domstig, and said, won't headship undergird abuse of women. So be thinking about that while you add your two cents, uh, Dr. Peters. Yeah, just a, just a little addition. Transferring from right. the home to the church, that's yeah. the question. Yeah, if we look at the Garden of Eden, for example, in the Garden of Eden before the fall, it uh, was a home, and they worshiped uh, on the Sabbath. And there was a statement from the Spirit of Prophecy that uh, was read here, I believe. In fact, Deutschen, I think you found it. Uh, that we should return to the Eden principle. Remember that statement? And where the, uh, the father should be the priest of the home. That's the Edenic principle. So in Eden, it was both a church and a home. Okay, so going back to the very beginning. And then, uh, Laurel, this question. Um, and they, I think they probably asked you um, because they actually were thinking they wanted a, a woman's perspective on this. As many times you hear that headship would lead to abuse. That seems to be the new argument on the block. Hierarchy has nothing to do with cruelty. Amen. Amen. And there is a loving leadership that Paul talks about in Ephesians 5. In fact, it's so loving, it's compared to Jesus Christ himself. And to call that a cruel situation or compare it to a cruel situation is very bad. I have seen some you know, abuse in, in different people I've discussed things with. And through the years, I've noticed that a lot of abuse has to do with alcoholism. And instead of just um, always uh, blaming, it, blaming it on a godly person or somebody that is supposedly hierarchical or something, 
think about some of the other aspects of, of society that are causing a person to be cruel. And in fact, that has something to do with the original curse on, um, in Genesis 3.16. Um, but it's not got part of God's plan. It's part of what the devil does to destroy confidence in a leader in a family. And it is very tragic, and it does have scars for life. Okay, yeah, that kind of reminds me of the quip that just because, uh, you know, just because Jim Jones was a Baptist, all Baptists are bad. Uh, you can always find examples, extreme examples of some people that do something wrong with their position, but that doesn't mean that the position is wrong, you know. So, uh, an excellent point that you've made there. You wanted to add to this. Go ahead. I, I wanted to add this idea of hierarchy. I spent 21, uh, 27 years wearing this nation's uniform uh, as an Air Force officer. We had hierarchy. And in many ways, it's countercultural based on the way the United States in general thinks about hierarchy. But I will tell you, we were a band of brothers. But somebody had to be in charge. Somebody had to say, go. And then the rest had to execute. That didn't make that it just it wasn't tantamount to abuse. It didn't intimate abuse. It just meant that you had to have a formal structure. Otherwise, how are you going to accomplish the mission? Okay, one more question on headship that I want to throw in here, and then I have another couple questions um, coming up here. Does the Bible doctrine of male headship mean women cannot hold executive positions in business or things outside of the church or in secular governments? And maybe I'll direct that to our, our historian, uh, semi-politician guru. Um, I don't know who you think that is, but try and look for a red tie and accompanied by a red face at this moment. Go ahead. <laughs> the, answer is, the answer to the question is no, because we are talking about spiritual headship. We are not talking about secular leadership. I have probably voted for more female candidates for secular political office than a whole lot of my fellow Adventists who favor women's ordination. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, there's a lot to follow up there uh, with, but we won't. <laughs> okay. Um, let me move to another question. And this one is handwritten, was handed to me. Uh, uh, right here in our little auditorium. Romans 13 um, says that whoever resists authority resists the ordinance of God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. But James I of England used these arguments to assert the divine right of kings. Yet we would not have our civil and religious liberties today if people had not asserted themselves against his doctrine. Is this an example of how sometimes contemporary cultural reform movements inform a moral compass that must sometimes apparently contradict a scriptural statement? I guess simply put, can you stand up to a government that's misusing or using, perhaps rightly using, they think, scripture? Okay, a good question for our 
What was it? You were a general or something? Or <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm just trying to get your points. <laughs> um, Jesus said, "Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's." So you're make that make that a little plainer for us. Well, if if, if it's a spiritual issue, and we're dealing strictly with spiritual issues here, then we have to look to the Scripture. But if the government is having you do something that's not running, running counter to what you believe from a faith-based principle, then by all means, you have to comply. But if it cuts across what God has explicitly commanded us to do, then we are to say, no, I'm not going this far, no further, though the heavens may fall. Okay, so the point of the question, I think, is there were times in history where people stood up to a government and changed things for positive good. And should we do that on the basis of Scripture? Was King James using the Scripture right? Or were the people that stood up to him using the Scripture right? That's the question. Anyone else want to take, I mean, I like what you said, but anyone else want to add to that? I think it's an important question, and I will tell you why I think it's important. Some people on the pro-ordination side feel so strongly about this issue that they have stood up to the general conference because they say they're misusing things. Just to murky the pot here a little bit <laughs> to get everyone awake. And they think they have a basis to do that. I, I'm not, I think their motivation, I, I can't question it. They, they probably think it's very right what they're doing. But they're, they've taken the onus to stand up against a church governmental system. And this question was related to a secular governmental system. Now that I have all your attention... Anyone going to take that on? Yes. I think they're trying to compare apples and oranges. Okay. Really because we're taking a look at an impetus that came from a cultural context. We go back to the late 19th century, and the very idea of women's ordination was born out of the equal rights movement, which was conjoined with feminism and women's suffrage. So now what we want to do is take what was purely a cultural issue, because women's ordination was tied to it, I'm not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm simply saying it is what it is. And now we're trying to take a cultural, secular context and project it on an ecclesial one. That dog don't hunt. <laughs> okay. Yes. I just want to say um, uh, I don't have a lot of experience in many committees and general conferences and maybe one day. But um, uh, maybe. But uh, <laughs> hopefully not too much. But... Uh, there is ways to uh, bring up new light, we can say. If you think that you have a new theological doctrine or idea, there are ways to do it without usurping the pulpit or authority or place or position that you have as a professor. So, for example, if you have an idea, you're not going to disseminate your idea among the, your, 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 your students, and then you're going to pump up everybody and things like that. You will bring your idea to certain committees. You will talk with the people who are in charge. You will go to symposium. We'll talk about the idea. We'll vote on it and things like that. But, the, but to misuse your, for example, let's say uh, you believe in Sunday, and you are a seven, uh, Seventh-day Adventist. And then you use your pulpit in your church if you're a pastor, and you preach on it all, all the time. Uh, this is misuse, abuse of your position because you are using a Seventh Adventist pulpit to preach ideas that are against Seventh Adventist church. Women's ordination has been voted twice 
that, it, that we do not allow it as a part of Seventh Adventist practice and doctrine. And then to go to a Seventh Adventist pulpit and to proclaim that idea against the teaching and the doctrine and practice of the church is rebellion. Mm -hmm. There are ways to do these things without misusing and abusing your power over some students that just want to get a good grade. There, there are ways to do it, and, 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 and often, that, and especially in this case, has not been done properly, especially from the context that I'm coming from and things like that. Yes, Dr. Mills. Scripture shows that our understanding of Scripture itself depends on our, our surrender to the Scripture itself. Uh, John 7, 17 says, if anyone wills to do his will, if we will to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So the first question, when, uh, when apparently conflicting biblical uh, views are being bandied about, the first thing I want to know is, am I willing to do God's will regardless? The second thing, Daniel 12.10, many shall be purified, made white and refined, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. Yes. And so our job is not to see what somebody else believes, whether it was king or or bishop, what they believe the Bible says. My job is, am I surrendered to God's will? Because people can misinterpret, mis, uh, uh, misconstrue scripture. And am I surrendered to the Lord? And if I am, if I truly want to be led by him, God's promised, I will understand. Mm -hmm. And I believe God. All right, I want to move to another question. Let's keep moving here because we need a new question to engage us. Many people sent in questions related to this, uh, but let me just use this one. How do you answer those who believe that conservative Christians' defense of spiritual male headship is analogous or like the defense offered by earlier generations of religious conservatives for practices like slavery and racial segregation? So you get the argument? And I've heard it many times, and a number of questions came in, is that the arguments you're using for headship sound a lot like the arguments that the slave masters used against the slaves. And what would you say to that? Well, the analogy is erroneous, and, it, and, it's, and it's completely invalid. Because the arguments in favor of racial injustice, many of them were so absurd that you wonder how anyone could have sustained them in, in, in any, w w w with any kind, of, uh, any kind of intellectual clarity. For example, <laughs> the claim in that Genesis 9, verse 27, teaches the subordination and subjugation of blacks. Where do they get that? All it says is that, you know, uh, Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. I mean, if you let the Bible be its own interpreter, what does that mean? The Canaanites were subjugated by the descendants of Shem and Japheth. There's nothing there about black skin. Thank you. 
this, this, this is a ridiculous argument. And one wonders how, why it was sustained so much except for the economic and yeah, cultural exactly. reasons that in the American South, <clears throat> this, this was seen as so essential. The point is that the big, the bottom line difference between male headship and either the, the segregation issue or the slavery issue is that gender is the one distinction in the human experience which God designed. The Bible does not say slave and free created he them. The Bible does not say black and white created he them. The Bible does not say patrician, plutocrat, plebeian, and peasant created he them. All of these are human constructs. Gender, by contrast, is a divine construct. The Bible says male and female created he them. Amen. And to that I say amen. And that male headship was put in the Bible or Put, oh, I must say, put in the Bible. Male headship is outlined in the Bible by our loving Creator, who created us and knows what's best. Now, Doctor O, you know this slavery arguments. You've mm -hmm. probably heard a lot of those. In other words, mm -hmm. I I sometimes feel like, let me give you an example. At the Theology of Ordination Study Committee, a very prominent theologian got up on the very first day of the Theology of Study Ordination Committee. You might remember this and got up and made a big speech and he said, this is the day that William Wilberforce stood up against slavery and I feel it's, it's appropriate that we stand up for women today. And it was trying to bring in this racial argument. What would you say in a situation like that? I found myself a little bit upset. Yeah, what happens is that, um, you know, I would say that that sounds like somebody that's trying to appeal to us from an emotional standpoint to make a decision based on emotion. And we should not make decisions based on fired up emotions without reasoning everything out. So what happens, we must use, we must use our reason. Yes, that is a, a fact of we need to stand up against all injustice. But what we're dealing here is not injustice towards women. We affirm women in ministry, but we believe that the Bible marks out distinctions and that's what needs to kept be kept what the issue really is and what it's not i have a couple questions i'm going to put together um, that came in but they were about first timothy chapter three here's the questions i'm going to put them together and then i'm going to throw them out there both sides uh, appear to repeat the same text and quote them over and over and over again is there a neglected text, a blind spot? That was the question, okay? And I, um, you know, I don't know what text they had in mind, but I'll, I'll tell you from listening on the committee, those that were pro-ordination were always quoting Galatians chapter 3, um, uh, 3, 28 and 29. And then I don't know what the most quoted text was on the other side, but it may have been... First uh, Timothy, Timothy three, First Timothy, uh, Timothy yeah. two, yes. I would suggest that there are two neglected texts, a blind spot. Uh, at the study committee, it was argued by pro-ordination scholars that husband of one wife, and then came a long paper, 20, 30 minutes, ultimately can mean wife of one husband. <laughs> a 180 degree turn. 
Uh, one neglected text here is probably 1 Timothy 5, verse 9, where Paul uses a feminine term, a woman of one husband, which means a feminine version already exists. There can be a woman of one husband, and on the other hand, there's a husband of one wife, or, or a wife of one husband in 5, verse 9, and a husband of one wife in uh, chapter 3. So to clarify, that means these, these phrases are gender-specific. The other neglected text is one that uh, Don McIntosh used, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through 16, where after the gender discussion, Paul now goes to the roles of God the Father and the Son, and he demonstrates that submission of the Son to the Father in the Incarnation then actually led to the gospel being preached among the nations. Mm. And so I, I think that would be the biggest blind spot is the conclusion of Paul's articulation in 1 Timothy 3 does not end with elders and deacons and, and husbands and wives, but in the submission of the Incarnation and the gospel effect that had on the world. I think um, in, in an email also that was too, <laughs> sorry to come back to you, to Laurel Domstick or a question that came in, um, they asked the same thing, uh, can or related to what we're talking about, why can't 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 5 be interpreted in a gender inclusive way? Well, it, because it's not uh, gender inclusive, it's very specific. Um, persons that try to make an heir, which is the male term there, they like to go back to Matthew and some of those kinds of other places and make these big word studies and show that, try to show that it's generic. But our rule really is to look at the context of the, t the passage, and there are enough uh, anairs in that passage, if you just go right up there, being very specific that it is a man. And it's a problem if we say, all right, husband of one wife, all right. If we say, come to the end of the, the discussion and we say wife of one husband, that means that each of those terms are interchangeable. What is, what's to keep us saying at that point, husband of one husband or wife of one wife? It's, we're, we're getting into very dangerous territory when we are able to make that kind of an interpretation. Okay, oh, thank you. Real, yes. Real quick follow-up. Uh, you actually mentioned an overlooked text in the debate, and that is 1 Timothy chapter 1. And you pointed out, and I highly recommend a presentation, that in 1 Ch Timothy chapter 1, Paul introduces the Ten Commandments twice. That's correct. They are violated by false teachers. And then uh, later on in 1 Timothy 3, the characteristics of an elder are tied to a, a man who keeps the Ten Commandments. And I think that has been an overlooked factor. Okay, here's another one. Now, some of you um, have demons. That doesn't mean you're demented, but you have a doctor in ministry. Some of you have... Uh, <laughs> PhDs, some of you are MDs, some of you are, well, you're just, you basically look like a bunch of alphabet soup up here. You've got all kinds of letters. 
Um, and what I hear, and a couple questions came in. In fact, four questions came in. And I'm sure if I look back at the email, there'd be more. Why are so many academics pro-ordination? If all of these people who have studied so much are pro-ordination, then maybe I'm missing something. So uh, that's the question. In other words, people are being, um, and I've actually seen some of this rhetoric where, in fact, one of the reports that was given at TOSC, uh, they made a big point. They had a video, they showed interviews with people from every college campus, and then they shared statistics. And then, uh, then there was other statistics. This 95% or 98% of all seminary professors believe this way or that. How can a, a person that's looking at this uh, re relate to that kind of thing? I want to start with Dr. Peters. Does anyone else want to sound off on this? Dr. Peters, Dr. Mills, and Dr. then I'll Sorkin, be quiet. And then okay. Kevin, even though your mic is poised, you will actually be the last. Go ahead. <laughs> It's interesting to note that um, prior to 1960 or 1970, our theologians in the seminaries uh, basically all took the position, uh, as we are advocating today, that only men should serve in the office of elder. It was only beginning in 1970, 1973, 75 thereabouts. What was happening at that time? Well. What was happening was a cultural uh, earthshake. What was happening in 1960 was the hippie movement, 1960s, 1970s, free love, trust your feelings. And many of the professors today in our theological seminaries, the one that we have here in North America, for example, all have come out of beyond the baby boomer generation. And they have all been infected by this culture and that culture indeed, indeed has a, a infected them. And it's in a, affected them in the way they look at scriptures that deal with these cultural issues. And so today we have professors that come from a, culture, a different cultural mindset than the professors that we had in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And that, can be a, that probably is a contributing reason why we have some of our theologians taking the positions they're taking today. Okay. Anyone else on this issue of uh, <clears throat> the letters? Yes, go ahead, Dr. Mills, um, and I then love, Dr. Sorke, and then Kevin Paulson, and then Alan Davis. Go ahead, quickly. I love this scripture, John 7, 48. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh not many mighty, not many noble are called. Okay. Festus, Festus in Acts 26, 24 sarcastically accused Paul and said, much study has made thee mad. <laughs> and we had uh, papers by scholars at our committee that, that were, I'm not kidding, eight, nine hundred pages long. And to me, it looked like the question no longer was, what saith the Lord, but what saith the commentary? And the other thing I want to throw, throw out is it is curious to me that Jesus picked none of the scholars from Jerusalem. He picked learnable fishermen. 
And our Advent movement was also started by humble, simple lay people. Amen. Academics can be helpful, but many times it can be a hindrance to the honest pursuit of truth. Thank you. I'm, I'm speaking as one who holds two master's degrees in theology, but nevertheless, as has been stated already from the word of God, academic and scholarly achievement is not a guide to truth. You know, how many scholars got on board Noah's Ark? <laughs> Or were they out there with their arms looped around the horns of the nearest triceratops? <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you for that. <laughs> I woke up everybody here, at least in the studio. Uh, yeah. Sometimes Dr. I just Davis. don't know how to follow him. <laughs> you know, uh, along with that, that line of thinking, with all the alphabet soup that many of us have, I found that, especially in my own case at times, that education is inversely proportional to common sense. And so oftentimes we get so steeped in our thinking and our degrees and whatnot that we, we lose the bigger picture. You know, one of the things I think about in terms of the culture that Dr. Peters just alluded to, you know, you had this cultural revolution that really was taking off in the 60s, but it was still being held in check up until about 1971 when the Bretton Woods Act was enacted and America went off the gold standard. We started printing money at will, inflation. You know, you had the Ford and the Carter administrations inherit something that wasn't endemic to them. And now all of a sudden, one income won't work anymore. Women have to go back to work. Okay, and now they're competing with men so in the workplace. How is this related to the question again? Well, the whole concept here is this cultural. I was just kind of uh, bridging off of what Dr. Peters said. And what's happening is that a pr the product, many of our theologians today, are those who were born in the late 60s, possibly in the 70s. And so they're a product. There, many of them are latchkey kids and two parents in the workplace. Okay. Uh, Dr. Veloso, we're going to move off of this. We don't want to do a dissertation on this, this particular issue. Go ahead. Well, I was about to, to make a dissertation. <laughs> Since adding degrees is so important, you see, I really don't believe that it is that important. There is a conventional value to any degree particularly if you want to be a teacher in a university level, you have to have a, a degree for that job. But to say that you get credentials to understanding the truth of the Bible based on degrees, which many times don't have anything to do with the Bible. I have friends with high degrees that they don't know the Bible. Um, another thing, another point, is we are only taking in consideration the degrees of North American professors. Outside of North America, there are many, many with doctoral degrees, PhDs, and all of that, who are conservative, who are committed to the Bible, who are 
following the Bible as it reads. Amen. Amen. So we should make a worldwide comparison to see whether we have a lot of uh, highly educated people in favor of ordination. And in that case, you may be astonished. And even then, to discover that when you compare uh, eight, taking 10 is a lot. But if you compare eight in, with a thousand, then it is very little. So let's okay. be balanced. Education and wisdom are not synonymous. <laughs> Okay, it was, it so was Einstein who said, I, "I take it that uh, the consensus here is that degrees are good as far as they go, but they should not be pointed to, and numbers shouldn't be pointed to, in, in an attempt to move people one way or another. Uh, the truth itself should be looked at." Um, I'm thankful for all the gr degrees you have, by the way. I don't think we want to come out of here saying that we don't believe degrees uh, have any value at all. We think they do, but perhaps to use them in a uh, political, uh, uh, you know, taking percentages and trying to use them in a political type way uh, could be problematic. Don, there's a saying of evangelists, if it's in the Bible, we want it, right? right. If it's a clear statement of the Bible, we want it. That's, you know, we're, we're simple people and we just want to follow the Bible. Okay, we're going to the next question. What would be done if uh, the church voted um, to um, go back to what you believe is the biblical model, uh, which would be um, no women elders in local churches, that just reserved for men, and no pastors in local churches. And this person was asking the question because they know a number of women that are in those roles. Um, what would you do uh, or what could be done? And I know it's really not a question for you but it's because you don't have to figure that out. But since you guys are making the suggestion that this should be done, how would you see that these very dedicated women who have been serving in these capacities, how should they be dealt with? What, what would be the ramifications for them? I Dr. think it's o. gone on for so long. It's been going on for over 40 years. Um, even if that was voted, it may be very hard to enforce that. Because what happens is that um, what, what's going to happen to a pastor or a church that says, no, we want so-and-so to be our elder, even though it's been voted, it may be very hard to enforce that. Okay. But revival, revival and reformation will entail the rolling back of unscriptural practices. It may take time. Yeah. Take and, time. And, and, and it may be painful. Yes. But the fact is that this is where we need to begin. Yes. And we also need to make it clear that a woman need not be an elder to, to play a very visible and active and decisive role in the leadership of a local congregation. Okay. You know, th th those of us who grew up in the church remember when, uh, you know, as, as you know, I was raised in a church not too far from here. My father was head elder for many years. My mother was very active in the church. If anybody would have gone to her, though, and said, you should be an elder, she would have laughed at you. That's a man's job. Okay, well, that's not the question, though. What I want to do is go around the horn and okay. hear a brief answer from everyone on this. 
because I think it's a vital question. We're dealing with people's lives. They've been committed. What would you, what would you say about it? It's not enough to just say, well, we'll just do it. What, this is a pastoral type question. It's got deep implications. Yes, go ahead. Quickly, around the horn. Quickly. We have spent an enormous amount of uh, theoretical uh, amount of energy and time on theoretical studies. I think we also need to invest time in answering practical implications. And that will take time. It will need to involve administrators. It needs to be done with pastoral gentleness and con concern and cannot be done from one, from one day to another. Okay. Quickly, quickly, quick yeah, answers. I, Chris answers. I don't think that uh, this is something we can uh, resolve now. We have a big problem. And we should go step by step, praying, studying the Bible, being Christian, fully dedicated to God. And he will guide the church on how to do it gently. Uh, to hurry too much could be a way to commit many mistakes. Dr. Holmes? There is no brief answer to this. I feel like Julie Mesa feels. I, I wish it would all go away. You know, I feel so sad that this issue is the one that forced the hermeneutical issue to the surface. Something had to eventually do that, mm -hmm. because that's the real issue here, the authority of scripture. Yes. And I feel so sad that it's this women's ordination issue that has forced us to deal with that. There is going to be fallout from this, no matter which way the decision goes. That is unfortunate. What do you do when you make a mistake? The church made a mistake, and we're all responsible because it's a corporate family body. Back in 1975, yes. when the, 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 it wasn't a GC session decision, but the Autumn Council voted to approve the ordination of local women elders. That was the major mistake. What do you do? You repent. Yes. You confess, we made a mistake, you repent, let's use our own language, our own religious language and the, and, the, and the right process. You know, we're all responsible. Repent, confess, you know, make a change, straighten it out. You know, that's what, that's what, that's what you do with, you know, I hate to use the word, <laughs> sin, <laughs> you know, but you know what I mean. Mm. You know, let's have let's have the the guts and the courage to do what has to be done, Amen. and then take a pastoral approach. Amen. You know, I feel sorry for you know women that might be hurt in this the process of straightening things out. But we have to take a pastoral approach to these women. Right. You know, we don't cut them off you know overnight. We have to help them find their way into a into a, a ministry in the church that you know that fits God's will. Amen. 
That's right. You know. Okay, let's let's keep going. And those who have already spoken on this, you've already spoken. But those who have not, let's keep going. Orders have to be followed and executed. <laughs> but in the manner in which we do them and the amount of time that we take requires wisdom. Right. It requires a complete consecration and a surrender to Christ. And then what we need to understand and use the minds that God gave us, ask the appropriate questions by anticipation, and provide answers to those questions. There's no hurry. Go through them. And how many of us have used case studies in the past? Go ahead and start thinking about what the potential solutions could be. And then once you have a plan, don't ever go off half-cocked through a knee-jerk reaction, and then execute your plan systematically. Go ahead. Yes, sir. In short, I don't know. This is a huge issue and probably one of the biggest because we have women that are extremely talented and are really good at what they do. They love the Lord with all their hearts. And to suddenly tell them they don't have a job anymore, I don't know how that is done. And it, we are going to have to pray and fast and really spiritually um, deal with this because it's not something that can be done administratively. Dr. Rowe? Wow, just, just listening to all the responses. Um, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure. Did I say that right? Yeah, one ounce of prevention. Um, if this is um, voted, um, it's like you said, um, Sister Domstig, you know, to tell women they don't have a job. Uh, it's going to be, a, it's going to take the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. That's all I really can say. Sin hurts. It causes problems. Um, when a tumor is growing, it hurts to take it out. Um, uh, some treatments hurt. But we have promises, and here's the promise. I love the Bible, the spirit of prophecy. Here's the promise. Whatever your anxieties and trials, spread out your case before the Lord. Your spirit will be braced for endurance. The way will be opened for you to disentangle yourself from embarrassment and difficulty. This is true not only for individuals. It's also true for institutions. Do you have anything? Dr. Peters, did you already mention something on this? No, I haven't. I would endorse what Laurel said. Um, but I think we need to remember also that um, the goodness of God is what leads to repentance. And only the conviction of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God upon the heart will bring about the goodness of God leading to repentance. In other words, there will be an automatic desire to repent. So we also have to look at uh, the issues that Nehemiah faced in the Old Testament. Did he 
follow a stepwise repentance over a period of six or 12 or 18 months when there was a reformation to take place with Josiah? Did he follow a stepwise process? But he took, he took immediate action. So we have to look at this very carefully. We need the wisdom of God. We need guidance. But, you know, I've laid out kind of both sides of the thing here, the issue. And um, we need to follow what God says. Okay. Um, what I sense from listening to this panel right here is that that's a very rough question. It was a very good question. And uh, we need a lot of sensitivity right. in, in that. And I, I didn't hear anyone say this, but I'll just add my two cents. Who's to say that people cannot be fully, continuously employed in ministry, maybe just redirected in some type of way? I wouldn't see anybody uh, having to be out of ministry um, and even paid ministry given the position statement, position number one because there was a huge latitude for people to be involved in service. Certainly there need to be study of that, but um, certainly position number one has uh, at least put a foundation there that has a multitude level, a number of ministries and whatnot. Mr. Um, Moderator, uh, it might be out of line, but there's a member in the audience well, we need to come up here we who would like to contribute to this. Yeah. Um, this is Daniel Mesa. He's a pastor and he might have an idea for us. I just, first of all, I want to take off my shoes because I think the place where I'm, on, where I'm standing is holy ground. But I think we could learn as a world church from Ezra chapters 9 and 10 where the children of Israel had gathered themselves to the nations that they shouldn't have and it was very painful to separate. Wow. You can read in chapter 10 they wept very sore. And I think we ought to take a little time to consider that in our consideration of what the church might do in this situation. Amen. Thank you. Yes, uh, yes, you go ahead. You did not speak already did, on this. Go I was ahead. speechless before. Um, I think this controversy brought up a, uh, a sore lack that our church has in the last hundred years. And this is the complete eradication of the ministries that Ellen White was creating and talking about for the laity and and for the supporting ministries, um, the this one of the strongest ministry was medical missionary work. When I talk about medical missionary work in the seminary, uh, half of the time I see blank faces. And this, she says, this is the right hand of the gospel. This is the major way to reach the secular community. And we the don't even. Work. We, this is the closing, this is the last work, and at the end of time, this is going to be the work. And this is not being taught at the seminary yet. Hopefully it will. There's other types of ministry, like uh, visitation ministries. Um, there's Bible work. Uh, there's literature evangelism. There's evangelism. There's evangelism. Sure. Exactly. There's a lot of different ministries. Our seminaries train only one thing, pastors. Instead of a, a, a spectrum of different ministries. And you go to the to seminary, and you can choose what your gifts are for. 
and you can be trained into those ministries, whether it's medical mission work, whether it's literature evangelist, you take two years training if necessary, be a great canvasser, co-porters. That was the greatest force of the Adventist Church in the 19th century. We don't have that enough today. There's so many different ministries that we have lost, and women, the women are a great force of the church. They want to work, and the only outlet is the headship pastoral leadership. And they feel called by the Lord, and we are not giving them outlet. So I'm glad that at least this controversy, what is brought, a sore lack for expression of gifts that God has given to the women. Thank you for that. I wanted to say one thing before we go to our last question, and that is I wouldn't want any person, any woman that was listening that's involved in ministry to think that they are a cancer or to think that they are <laughs> the definition of sin in the camp. I think that many people that are involved in ministry that perhaps some on this committee don't think is biblically sustainable just because of the various roles that are spelled out in Scripture, I don't think anybody here on this, com at this committee is looking at individuals in that way. I think that the motives of many people involved in ministry are pure, holy, and God has used them. So I hope that that, that comes across, and I think that's your hearts as well, right? Amen. Okay, last question. How could the church change now? Haven't we gone too far? How could the church change now? Have we not gone too far? It's kind of related to what we said before, but let's just take a stab at that, and I'm going to have the final say on that one. So don't, don't say too much, anybody that says something. Leave me a little space at the it end. It appears like that. It appears like it's gone too far, but this is God's church, and if he can heal sickness and disease physically in the New Testament, and as well as the old, he can heal all the problems in God's remnant church. Amen. 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 The people accused Jesus, you let Lazarus go too far in his sickness and he died. That was an opportunity for a resurrection. It appears that the people, or it appeared that the people went too far when they were down and there was noise in the camp and Moses was on the mountain and he came down with the law, but God fixed the problem. He fixed the problem. Anyone else? Yes. Patriarchs and Prophets says uh, something interesting about Lucifer. It says uh, that uh, uh, many of the angels that had been led uh, by him for a while, many were disposed to heed this counsel, the loyal angels, to repent of their disaffection and to seek to be again received into the favor with the Father and his Son. But Lucifer had another deception ready. The mighty revolter now declared that the angels who had united with him had gone too far to return, that he was acquainted with the divine law and knew that God would not forgive. We have not gone too far ever to repent and forsake our sins. Amen. Amen. We have just less than a minute here. Um, I want to thank each of the panelists for um, coming all the way from various universities and various ministries around the globe. Thank you for taking your time. I want to thank Secrets Unsealed for putting on this event. I want to thank those in the studio audience that come, everyone that's watching. I want to encourage you again to do something. Get the word out about these presentations. How many of you think you should let everybody know on your Facebook site? We want to put up again all of the links here at the end of the program so people can know about that. And, uh, and paste it and let everybody know. Just get the word out. How many think there is some valuable material here? 
You know, everything I heard tonight in terms of answers is backed up by deeper presentations throughout the symposium. I encourage you to watch each of those You've, um, and, and study those out, look at the materials with them. In our last just remaining moments, I don't think it's too late to change. Just say this to you as we close. The largest Protestant denomination in the nation is the Southern Baptist Convention. They had 1,600 women that were involved in ministry. They reversed course and their denomination actually grew by several million. It has been hard, it has been arduous for some of them. I've talked to some of them about that. It's not an easy thing, but I think we should take confidence that there are people that have actually addressed this issue, studied this issue, and have actually changed. It's not easy, um, and yet I believe God can lead, and we have examples even outside our camp um, of people that we hope someday are inside our camp. Amen. And if we can change in this way, we believe they can as well. Thank you. God bless you. We want you to uh, do everything in your power to spread the good word that God wants to use both men and women in ministry for his cause. God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.